Paramahansa Yogananda, a biography by Swami Kriyananda. Talk 8 by Asha Praver. April 3, 2012. Copyright 2012, Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. Well, we've been working with Chapter 17 of this biography of Yogananda that Kriyananda just wrote. And Chapter 17 is the salient characteristics of Paramahansa Yogananda. And the way we've been working with this is to, to think about each of these chapters, each of these qualities, of which there are 32, and we are on number 14 or 15, I have to ask if either of you remember, um, by really trying to think how, by understanding what each of these qualities are, it gives us a full picture of what our own potential is and both how to understand that potential. So that's the way we've been thinking. Did I talk about bliss last week or not? I couldn't remember. Bliss, number 14. Blissful outlook on life. Yeah, I, that was my belief. And I was sort of testing to see if anybody else remembered. <laughs> okay, so we're up to number 15. He was deeply loving to all and concerned for their well-being. My mother once visited me in Mount Washington and was scheduled to have an interview with him. <coughs> I asked him beforehand, Sir, will you please pray that she be brought onto this path? Yes, he said, so almost abruptly that I wasn't sure he'd even heard me correctly. At the end of his interview with her, and as she was leaving the room, he followed her to the doorway. There they shook hands in farewell. He continued to hold her hand, however. Speaking out loud, he prayed to God and to our line of gurus and said, May you be brought onto this path. This, for me personally, was a deeply moving moment. With tears of gratitude, I touched his feet. In fact, toward the end of her life, she did begin meditating. That's quite a scene when you think about it, isn't it? I mean, here he was. He was just a young man. He was less than 25 by the time uh, Master died. He was 22 when he went there. His parents were in, in Egypt when he moved to, to Master's ashram. They heard from Egypt that their promising firstborn, who was, had already dropped out of college and seemed a little directionless, had gotten on a bus in New York and gone to California to be with some Indian guru, and they're in Egypt. And this is 1948. I mean, you can just imagine their consternation, having not the foggiest idea what he'd gotten himself into, who he might be with. And Swami writes in the path how um, they sent various relatives just to see how he was doing um, because they, they must have been a little frantic from the other side of the world. But you know, that wasn't the days of airplanes or long-distance phone calls or anything like that. And Swamiji often says it was God orchestrated because it wasn't until she was on the boat to Egypt, his mother, that he found Autobiography of a Yogi. So the door had, the, the way had to be swept clear so that he could go and do that. So he was only with Master for three and a half years, so he doesn't say when this was that his mother came, but obviously it had to be sometime in there, and it would be long before the... Um, uh, rightness of his choice was manifest. Although there was always a strong intuition between Swami and his mother, so there may have been some um, more unstated understanding. But certainly his father was um, utterly disconcerted and pretty much remained so to the end of his life. So it wasn't like his father was ever reconciled, which certainly had an effect on his mother. And this was 1948, I repeat, not 1965, when, you know, was happening in the best of families. <laughs> this was a completely new thing. So then his mother comes to visit, 
And, you know, and Swamiji knows what this means, that he, he gets his mother an interview with Master. And then, I mean, she's his mother. I mean, that means something. And Swamiji was very, very close with her, and she was a lovely person. Um, but still, you know, Master took her hand, and right in front of her prayed to the Masters that she'd be brought onto this path. And that was such a, a deep commitment of Master's energy to one who hadn't, of her own accord, um, asked for it. And he did it for two reasons. He did it out of regard for Swamiji, because it was a favor that Swamiji had asked of him. And so out of loyalty to Swamiji, Master was loyal to those to whom Swami was loyal. You know, and on one hand, well, he, he, Master just knew it was true, and she was, in fact, a deeply spiritual person, and the blessing in that Master bestowed upon her will undoubtedly find fulfillment. But also, it's like the, what he's trying to say here is that, um, you know, he, as he put it, he was deeply loving to all and concerned for their well-being. I've seen that so much manifested in Swami Kriyananda. I understand this. You, many people don't really have time for those who are distant from the central part of their lives that aren't their family or the people they work with or... In his, in his case, the disciples they've taken responsibility for, those that have come to live in the ashram. But just to have this sort of um, equal-hearted um, sense that everybody is important. It, it's also, um, it's important also to, to really capture that. I was thinking about this earlier today or yesterday. I was talking to someone. Swamiji once talked about the importance of having a spiritual director for Ananda. Um, not because he wants to centralize authority or decision-making within Ananda. He's gone to a great deal of trouble to decentralize authority. Um, he writes in, I think it's actually in the script he's written for, the, for a movie that we're going to make about Ananda communities. And one of the things he said there was at a certain point, there was this habit, this attitude was beginning to develop where Ananda village headquarters um, was... was was asserting its authority over other communities just because it was the headquarters. And, and not in any bad way, but it's just you begin to think if you're at the hub, then you're in charge. And so Swamiji very conscientiously and carefully made it clear that all the communities were equal. And he said the way you avoid having uh, too much centralized authority is you just don't have a centralized authority. <laughs> you know, to keep headquarters from getting too much headquarters ego, you just don't have one. So Ananda Village runs the worldwide ministry, but it's, it's, he's been very definite about it. every colony is completely autonomous and the authority of all colony leaders is equal. So that we work together naturally, but we don't have to feel that somebody else is the decision maker and we're just subservient to someone because he saw how, what an awful mess that turned out to be in SRF and the Catholic Church and every place that you look. Um, and even in the SO Oil Company where his father worked, when his father was an oil geologist, you know, working in the field, he said the geologist would come from the head office and say, well, I think you can find oil over here. And they didn't know anything. They just thought that they were, because they're from New York, they knew more than others because they had a higher position. And when, Swam when Swami's father was in Egypt and knew exactly where the oil would be found, the decision was made from headquarters to pull them out. And he had to dissolve his office and went back to America and then another oil company came in and found it exactly where Swami's father said it would be. You know, but he couldn't get people to, to hear him at that time. Swamiji actually comments 
that he thinks that whole going to Egypt was just an exercise to clear the path so he can go to master because it professionally it never turned into anything for his father even though all his other assignments were very fruitful for him just as an interesting sideline but where I was going with all of that is now let me just find it for a minute oh yes but even despite that organizational reality there's still a spiritual director of Ananda it's in Swamiji has appointed Jyotish it's interesting Swami actually calls him the acting spiritual director meaning that Swami Kriyananda is really the authority but he's the acting spiritual director and the appointed successor. Um, And he has a a certain definite authority, especially over the monastic order and so on. But what the spiritual director really represents is the ideal Ananda devotee. And it's extremely important, as Swamiji pointed out, and I realize how subtle this is, that you have the personification of the ideal devotee in some position that people can see. Because Jyotish, by his, his humility, his kindness, his um, deeply centered nature, his calmness, you know, his, his loving nature. I mean, there's an enormous list of virtues that he and, and Devi, working together in that position, both personify humility, um, just a lack of self-importance, taking oneself too seriously, on and on and on. But you see, that, that holds up as an image. This is what it is to be an ideal Ananda devotee. And in our family, we may just take that as the given that you know they personify it, the way they relate to each other, the dignity of their relationship, all these th- factors. But you can have ashrams where um, the people in charge are you know haughty or very forceful in their authority or a little bit um, removed. Um, you just you can have a wholly different vibration. And I don't want to paint it only in the negative. It could be that perhaps the you know, those who in charge are extremely impersonal, uh, maybe solitary in their habits, maybe extremely austere, you know, perhaps not uh, very engaged with people. You know, just many things that you could, humorless, many things that you could think about. Not, uh, not, not creative in their own right. Um, you could make a long list of characteristics that wouldn't necessarily be wrong spiritually, but wouldn't be our particular vibration. And so you see it personified, and that first is the, in other words, lead by example and give everyone in the communities a standard by which to measure um, the ideal so it doesn't um, drift too far away from that. Because if you saw somebody who was very organizationally minded, for example, or rule-minded or something, you would contrast them to Jyotish and Devi, and you would realize, no, this is not really you know, what the ideal Ananda devotee is like, and you would have a way of measuring that. And, you know, one of the qualities is deeply loving to all and concern for everyone's well-being. In other words, not just insular, not just primarily concerned with our own people. Because, again, you could, you could see a lot of these things we just take for granted because we're, we've grown up in this tradition. So our tradition of, of having an expansive sense of concern for other people, is ingrained into us. But it isn't inherent in spiritual works. Some spiritual works draw very, you know, small circles around themselves, and, and, and it can be justified philosophically. You know, it's just not our concern. We're concerned for our own salvation. We don't want to get involved. It's, it's their karma. It's not ours to work with. We want to be more impersonal. I and mean, you can have lots of rules. But Master wasn't like that. And there's this example he gives of the way he related to Swami's mother, but there's also the other stories of him, for example, driving down the street and stopping at that shop of the total stranger, 
to buy things just so that they would have the money that they needed for whatever they needed. You know, just somebody who, from an external point of view, had meant nothing to him. But he didn't draw lines like that. And he would go down, as Swami tells elsewhere in this book, to the Bowery District in Los Angeles and just walk around and just send his vibrations out. Anyone who came in front of him, Master would give to them as much as they were able to receive. And that also, you know, helps set up in, you know, all of our understanding that that's how we're supposed to behave. We're not supposed to just sort of wait until somebody's worthy of our attention. It's just whoever comes in front of us, we need to give to them as much as as God inspires us to give and as they are able to receive. As much as God inspires us to give is part of it. You know, there's the story that's told in here of when Master uh, went into the house of his friend where somebody had died and then he brought that person back from the astral world. And one of the disciples said, you know, would you have done that if God hadn't asked you to do it? And he said, of course not. You know, Divine Mother told me to go there. So there's, there's also that, which is that Master's response was always inward. So he, Swami asked him, and he, he gave his word that he would do it. But also in the moment when Gertrude Walters, which was her name, was standing in front of him, he, he was also able to do it. He was able to do it in that particular way. He was able to hold her hand and bless her out loud right in that moment to inform her of what he was doing. Um, which in itself was just an interesting act of loving concern for her. On some level, he wanted her to know that this isn't just your son's path, this is also for you. He was telling Swamiji that. It was was really an amazing moment. His mother was a very, very, just a very lovely person. She was telling Swami about a little bit about his mother too that he might not have been sure of. It's true, it certainly... Swamiji had a very close tie to his mother, and I'm sure it reassured him. We were, we knew her a little bit, you know. The, you know, she lived 15 years or so after we all kind of came on the scene, and since he never had any biological children, we were sort of their kids. <laughs> you know, I mean, we were through his, through him, we were his kids in a sense. So, she welcomed us that way. I mean, she had a birthday. For some reason, David and I were there, which we were occasionally. She was just so sweetly. She uh, shook David's hand. He wished her happy birthday. And she said, she said, you you better be careful because if you keep on the way you are, you're going to end up just like me, is what she said. (laughs) She just had a very good sense of humor. And to the last day of her life, she was always in the present. She never allowed herself to, you know, get sucked back into memories or living in a world that wasn't the now. She was always able very much to relate right in the moment. I had the great fun, just as a side, when, when uh, Ray Walters, Swamiji's father, his health began to fail and he had a heart attack and things became a little harder for them. You know, like, like aging people, they were not eager at first to change their lifestyle. But they knew me somewhat, so they were willing to have me come and live in their house. So I lived in their house for about six weeks, um, just right when his health began to fail and they couldn't quite handle it. And Swami couldn't come himself. And then, uh, actually, we arranged for a woman who lived at Ananda, and she lived there for about two years and just sort of became their caretaker. And he died, and then she died, and then she came home. But, you know, so it was Ananda, actually, that ended up taking care of her. But it was a real privilege. They were just really noble people, lovely people. Okay. So any comments or thoughts about that?
before we, you know, and also that kind of loving concern is a natural extension of his bliss. It's, in fact, it's an inevitable extension of bliss because it's the nature of bliss to want to share itself. So if you're if you're feeling that kind of bliss, you automatically want to just give it to everybody. Everybody you see, you have the same desire to share it with, because it's not really. Everything looks the same to you. It's just it's just bubbling out, and wherever you you see see receptive consciousness, you just want to give to it. At, but it goes back to as many as received him, and that's that's the whole key. He just responded where there was um, the c- capacity to absorb it. So, um, number sixteen. Always, he was very much the leader. Wherever he went, something about him commanded respect. This fact was clearly evident, of course, in the demeanor of the thugs who menaced him during his early years. But he always emanated a quiet aura of authority. One woman in the Hollywood Church congregation told me that when she first saw the master, it was through a restaurant window. Suddenly then, she tugged at her husband's sleeve, Look, dear, through that window. That has to be the most spiritual man I've ever seen. Isn't that interesting? You know, just seeing him walk down the street and seeing him through a window. She didn't know anything about him, but it was just there. It was written on him. And somehow she had the sensitivity to perceive it. You know, what what was she seeing? What was she feeling? You know, you wonder, you know, what kind of quality. I have to say, though, when I, when I was very first on the spiritual path, before I met Swami Kriyananda, 69, maybe 67, um, I lived in Southern California, and we sometimes went to the Ramakrishna Society Temple in the hills of Hollywood. There's a temple up there, and they had uh, swamis from India, part of the Ramakrishna order. And this was before I'd read autobiography or knew anything about Ananda, and that was my spiritual link. And I was very green. I first learned about this teachings '65, probably it was the like about June of '66. So you know, I wasn't very very deep into it. And they had, at one of those Sunday services, a visiting Swami from India. And I was um, pretty intellectually oriented. And even though I was studying these teachings, I was studying Swami Vivekananda, who was more left-brainish about it. In fact, Autobiography of a Yogi was too much about miracles for me. I just wasn't interested in it at that time. Um, So it wasn't like I had a real highly developed... Um, devotional side. And this Swami spoke, and I remember thinking when he was speaking that he wasn't making a lot of sense. And not that he was talking gibberish, but he wasn't um, de- developing subtle points, you know, in a highly um, professorial way or anything like that. My memory of him is that he was just randomly telling us things. <laughs> just, you know, a little about this and a little bit about that. I don't remember what he was telling us, but just randomly this thing or that thing. But the more he talked, the happier I felt. And I recall still, I can still see his face. When we left the temple at the end of the service, the Swami stood. He was a young man. He couldn't have been more than 30. He, he stood there and he shook our hands and he just had a look on his face that I'd never seen before. And you know, his eyes were slightly turned upward and you could tell when he was looking at you that he wasn't seeing what the rest of us were seeing. And he was just, in a, in a, it, it appeared to me and felt to me in a very high spiritual state. How high, I couldn't possibly say, but certainly more than I'd ever met before. 
And it was so palpable. And it was so interesting to me because he wasn't doing any of the things that I considered to be the, the um, a criteria for advancement, whatever even that word meant to me. He just had moved outside of my box altogether and was just radiating from a completely other space. And it was gratifying to me, even now when I reflect on it, that I had the capacity to recognize that, that this was something completely else, but it was something com- highly desirable, but completely else. And it was just that. It was just that radiating energy. And, and so, you know, he w- just wasn't concerned about all the things that I, at that time, were still extremely important to me. Cogent logic, you know, impressive ideas, uh, philosophical soundness. He just had a vibration of bliss. He wanted us to have it. So he burbled out some words, you know. <laughs> and those who had ears to hear it, like, heard it. And those who had receptivity to get it, got it. I don't, have a, I don't know what his name was, and I never saw him again. Well, yeah, by that time I was a little brainier about it too. But No, but even then it was still a surprise. Swamiji, after I felt his consciousness, proceeded to speak in a way that I recognized also because he was, um, you know, it was the consciousness that attracted me, but then after he spoke his intelligence was also extremely impressive in the ways I was used to, in the Western way. He wasn't at all intellectual uh, in the dry sense, but he definitely fulfilled my ideas, whereas this other man was like, who knows where he was from. And the fact that Swamiji um, had that kind of intelligence, which was the you know Western kind of intelligence that I'm, I was accustomed to, I remember even at the time thinking of it as a bonus. It wasn't, it wasn't the reason I was, became... Um, connected to him because I became connected to him before he spoke. But after he spoke, I was grateful that he also had that quality because um, I knew that it would make it easier and more fun for me. The other would have been a bit more of a challenge. So God is funny. <laughs> like that. Because Master, I mean, Master obviously was brilliant in every way, but Swamiji once was saying to us, a group of us in the 70s when we were having some process within the community of Ananda trying to straighten out people's understanding of something or another. It was a fairly big kerfuffle going on at the moment about something. And so we just looked at us. He said, you have no idea. He said, I bend over backwards to explain things to you. He said, Master never bothered he said he would just give you a sentence or a line and then Swami just sort of waved his hand like that and then he would just leave you to figure it out. <laughs> you know, and he, Swami will explain it and then explain it again and then you know, talk to you about it one more time and Master just would, would put it there and then you had to rise to it or not and figure it out. Yeah. And yeah, we are very lucky in that respect. We have a zillion books and everything else. This business about Master being the leader is also, I mean, we're talking about his spiritual side, but we're also just talking about what real power is. You know, in in all the examples of him converting criminals and people coming to him with evil intention and him not being, them not being able to carry out those intention. And and then when he chose to, like when the man was trying to get his money in the park and Master finally stood up and just told him to go away with nothing but words. You know, you, you realize that Master just used nothing but words. He didn't lay a hand on this man or anything. It was just the sheer 
you know, power that comes out of him. People get power out of guns and knives or using their fists, but Master's power was just there. He had the power of the whole universe. And the other story in this book about the uh, the mother, the the nun's brother, who wanted to beat Master up, and again Master completely repelled him without ever touching him. In fact, in that case, he transferred to him, you know, that sense of great heat, and the man felt like he was burning up, and Master, you know, took it away by touching him. But you, when such a person, you know. Our whole conception of the universe, we, we, we fail to remember that it's all about energy. And we don't, we don't stop and think that the one quality we really need to develop above all other qualities is magnetism. I must have been reading it in this book today about the importance of magnetism. Yeah, it's in this book. And about how education in the future will be about developing magnetism. More, magnetism more than knowledge is really what gives us success in life. It's an amazing thing to contemplate. That doesn't mean that you don't need knowledge because knowledge also increases your magnetism. But what we have to realize is that we have a, if we have a worried mind, if we have a, an overly critical mind, if we have a, an egotistical, self-preoccupied mind, if we're not um, genuinely interested in the welfare of others, that all of these things create magnetism. And it really doesn't matter how many other things we have in place. If we don't have the right magnetism, then we can't attract, you know, all the things that we're trying to have. And, you know, the power of positive thinking and perseverance and um, uh, self-sacrifice, just, uh, you know, a hundred virtues end up in a quality of magnetism that make things happen. I'm I'm laughing in this sense. We we just finished our school our school theater production this year, as all of you know. And uh, Matthew Sloan has been directing those plays much of the time, not always over the years, but he's directed a number of them. And he has a very lively sense of theater. And sometimes the children, you know, it it takes effort to do anything well. And one of the many things that that theater production teaches the children of thousands of lessons, but one of them is. We start with nothing, and then they work steadily for six weeks, and they persevere, and they practice, and they keep trying to get better, and we end up with something really astonishing. And so it teaches them, you know, how much you can accomplish day by day if you just stick with it. I know in my own growing up, it was a, I, I realized as I became an adult, it was an, an enormous gap in my understanding was was how you could build something. I had, it took me a long time to figure out how you could build something. Because if it didn't happen fast, I didn't realize that if you stayed with it, it would happen eventually. So one of the things that just six, it's only six weeks is not a long time. But the other thing about theater, and it's a joke, but it's true, the show must go on. Meaning it really doesn't matter how you feel. You know, I'm not really interested in how you feel. Like right now, the show must go on and you must do it. And one time when the children were just complaining about everything. Oh, I'm tired of doing this. I'm bored with doing that. This is too hard to do and things like that. Matthew taught them all to say, and he taught them all to say it in various accents and various degrees of passion, I will suffer for my art. That's what he taught them to say. (laughs) 
And actually, the children were just really dull that I was working in the costumes up in the loft. And he had the children run from end to end in this room. And they would run to that end, and then he would lead them, and they would shout, I will suffer for my art. And then he would have them run to the other end, and then they would say it again. You know? And that was, that was last year or the year before. But the kids who've been in it for a long time, you know, when anytime anything would happen with the ones who were there, I would say, remember, and then they would say, I will suffer for my art. But even that, I mean, it was tremendously magnetic. And it was just a way of completely diffusing, oh, my arms are tired, I don't want to hold the lantern up for another minute, you know, or whatever it might have been. No, 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 I will suffer for my art. It was a joke. But you see how much magnetism it created? And as soon as you had all that magnetism, then everything about it begins to flow again. And, and that's what people don't understand. They think that if they just get the facts right, get the tests right, then they'll be successful. And you're, you're not successful in this world without magnetism. And what Master had was just this tremendous magnetism. And what was his magnetism based on? Well, it was based on all the qualities we're talking about. You know, what made him such a spiritual person? Well, on one hand, he had the perception of divine realization, but it manifested. It manifested in a blissful outlook on life, that he was always calm, that he had loving concern for everyone. And that was just how he moved through the world. It wasn't like he put on a hat and some special cape and, you know, some kind of costume like so many prelates do. I mean, you see these people in these medieval costumes and they walk around in these medieval costumes, but they don't necessarily have any magnetism. They just have on medieval costumes. And then you see a completely humble person, but, you know, they have the magnetism. Like that Swami that I met at that temple. He just had it. Whatever it was, he just had it. They, um, they say about Master, they wrote this in this book too, that he, his father used to give him railway passes and he would travel around even as a boy. And his friend said whenever he would land in any city in no time at all, he'd have a crowd of boys around him because they just feel it. This man has something that I want. And you don't have that by trying to get it for yourself. You have that by having his constant attitude of outgoing, how can I serve? I see God in everything. Every single quality that comes up to number 16 is what made him always the leader. And in our own lives, you know, when we want people to listen to us, and I remember when Swamiji was working with, you know, me in the earlier years, um, I could work hard, but I often became either quite frantic or worried or tense about things. And, you know, he trained everybody differently. Some people he tried to get them to get their energy going and he would push them to work more. Me, he said, you won't necessarily do more good by doing more. Meaning that once you lose your magnetism, even though you can keep putting out energy, that energy is not going to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. And it's always been my criteria, which is when my magnetism begins to go sour, I always have to stop. And I know that no matter what's happening, if I don't pull back in that point, nothing good is going to come to it from this. And of course, over many years, I've learned to keep my magnetism positive or to correct it more easily. It used to be when it went off, it was a much bigger issue to pull it back because it would just, you know, my energy would spin out of my control and it would take me quite a lot more effort. Now I see it faster and I can restore it sooner. But I've always remembered that. We're, we're not accomplishing 
just by putting in our time. We're accomplishing by, by creating and expressing the right magnetism. And people who have leadership magnetism or um, loving magnetism or whatever it might be, you know, it's, it's, it's the inevitable result of a whole way of living that can either be, just can't be created from the outside. At one point um, in 1977, or it must have been 77, um, when Swami Kriyananda finished writing The Path, the first edition of The Path, he left just as he finished. I mean, literally, he'd finished writing the book. I mean, the way the man worked was amazing. And he scheduled a trip to India. He was going to go away for six months, which he did, and go into seclusion for several months up in Kashmir. And, uh, and he finished the book, and he literally dictated the captions to the photos into a recorder as we were driving to the Sacramento airport. And, and there's, there's a series of turns, and then there's this last right turn as you go right into the airport. And he finished dictating the captions right there. Then we turned right, and he was finished. And he'd been working on this for who knows how many years. But anyway, he left... And then there was a group of us, and we were in charge of getting the book published. And this was before computers, so typesetting and everything was far more complicated. It was all a hand process. And, and there was this one woman involved on our team, and she was a very good proofreader, had a very good eye for details, but she wasn't fun to work with. And people often tried a way not to have to include her in the workflow. And I had some decision-making power, and she came to me, and it was very frustrating to her. She wanted me to, to compel people to consult with her before things went forward. And I told her I could make every rule in the world. But if she did not make herself useful to people, in other words, if she, was not, if she didn't have magnetism that made them want her help, then I could make all the rules I wanted to and they would still find a way to go around it. You know, it, because it was just true. She really had a lot to contribute, but she didn't have the magnetism to make anybody feel that she was being helpful. And we were all so busy that, you know, there was just no sense that this woman is helping us, even though in fact she was, because she actually could catch lots of mistakes, but we'd just rather scoot around her. Most people felt that was very interesting to me, because even the talent was there. The talent was there, and she was supposed to be included in the flow. <laughs> but people found marvelous ways not to include her. I was very impressed by the ingenuity people showed, you know, to avoid having to deal with her. Because the magnetism wasn't there, but Master was just always that way. What, what was he giving? You know, what was he giving out that made everybody want to deal with him? It's really worth asking, because that's what all of us need to have. And if we're not finding that the people in our lives, I'm looking at two of you who work with children, or the, you know, the children in our lives are responding. I, when I work with the children in our school here, because I'm not accustomed to working with them, I don't have that much magnetism with children. And I find that I try to assert something and they just don't see me. You know, children these days do not have an automatic respect for adults. So the mere fact that I'm an adult person doesn't seem to have any influence on them. But if, if the energies... And then I watch other you know, adults working with children who have developed this tremendous magnetism with children and they just have to kind of just do a little and all the children are just, you know, right there with them. Yeah, it's, it's extremely interesting. 
you know, so the whole quality of having magnetism with children is a whole nother kind of energy. What is it that attracts them and magnetizes them? Swamiji talks about it, actually, in his Education for Life book. And he talks about a teacher who tried too hard to be liked and that didn't have any magnetism, therefore. And he talked about a teacher who was very stern and not all that colorful, but, it, but everybody really liked him because he had the right magnetism to be a teacher. It's just, it's just interesting. It's not always obvious. You almost know that because you work with kids all the time. What were you going to say? How do you get that magnetism? By developing all the qualities that are listed up until number 16. <laughs> but if you've got some of those qualities and don't have that magnetism, like well, you, you were saying, like that lady had yes. talent but not the magnetism. She was self-concerned. That was 100% of her problem. She was annoyed that people didn't give her due homage and pay attention to her talents. And she was not willing to think about what they needed. She was only thinking about how she wanted the workflow to go. She wasn't willing to stand back and see what, you know, what are they up against and what do they really need and how can I fit into their reality. She wasn't willing to say, at what point could I be helpful to them? You know, when should I be looking at this work? She was defining her convenience and then asking people to meet her convenience specifically in that particular situation and wasn't willing to move out of her preferences to meet their preferences. That was specifically one of the problems, which is, she was defining her reality according to herself. One of, the, you know, one of the reasons Master was a leader is because he was always concerned about other people. What were you going to say, Amtia? Did you say that? In, I don't know. No, no, actually, we have you use it because a lot of people listen to this on a recording. Oh. And that just puts your voice on the recorder. That's gotcha. it. Gotcha. Okay. Uh-huh. Go ahead. So could you uh-huh. say that? Just a tiny bit closer to your mouth. There you could go. you say that? Uh-huh. Um, that the energy, she pulled energy in toward her, but she wasn't sending it out. Exactly. Magnetism is, is an expansive energy. Some people's energy whirls around their own nature. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you asked specifically about her. How do you develop that magnetism? I, I really do think by all the qualities that we're talking about here. Kriya develops a tremendous amount of magnetism in people just because you literally are becoming magnetic. Your energy is not always being dissipated. So there's, mag- there's, there's just magnetism, period, and then there's, there's positive magnetism, attractive magnetism, self-offering kind of magnetism. Some people who are good are good, but they're still not magnetic because they don't have enough energy to be magnetic. They're just limp, and they're nice people, but they're not magnetic. Because there's no, there's no power. So it's a combination of building up personal power and then um, having that power constantly be concerned about other people's welfare. Master also had wisdom. He actually had something genuine to offer. And what he had was something that everybody wanted, wants, which is bliss. So he was also the leader because he was able to lead. You know, his ideas, the, the leader of the dog pack is not always the biggest, but sometimes the smartest or the most entertaining. <laughs> you know, Swamiji comments that in most groups, there's a, the, mag, the magnetic leader of the group may not necessarily be the, the appointed leader of the group, but there'll be somebody who defines the energy and whose magnetism makes the whole thing work. And sometimes it's the person in charge and sometimes it's not. 
So it looks like uh, when you have less ego, you become more magnetized? As a, I mean, as a rule, that's yes. It's almost like. Well, you have more positive, genuine leadership if you have less ego. Many people are, who are egoic have a lot of magnetism, but they may have ego magnetism, which is not the kind of magnetism we're talking about. So you can be a leader without being a good person, but then you're not really taking people where they need to go. But they still have magnetism. They can still have magnetism, the sure. The wrong kind of magnetism. You know, a lot of people have, have bad magnetism. People will tell you, you know, that such and so a person, whenever I'm around them, I always do the wrong thing because they, you know, they take you off in directions you don't want to go. I laugh. I mean, I, this is completely just, I make this up, but a psychic once said to me that I helped start the French Revolution. <laughs> I can see myself starting doing that. And I often, think, I often think that the reason I just have to talk so much about spiritual teachings is that I had magnetism, but I didn't use it in the right way. I used it to draw people to causes that weren't um, the best. And I now have a huge karmic debt to pay. So I just have to talk and talk and talk and talk, talk and talk and talk, you know, until I get it all straightened out. Once they, um, it was actually when we first got this building, somebody had to go to the city hall in Palo Alto to talk about what kind of a sign we could put out in front. And nobody was thinking. And they sent me to go talk to some bureaucrat. I mean, nobody was thinking because they all know who I am. I went there and I start talking to this woman who had the power, had a lot of power, but um, more power than she should have had, than she really genuinely deserved. And we were talking about the sign and she just finally said, well, you know, why do you need a sign anyway? What difference does it make? You know, and we just paid you know, a million and a half for this building. And one of the great things about it was it was on El Camino and we certainly wanted a sign. She didn't care. didn't care about any of it. I became enraged. I don't mean I became actually annoyed. I became enraged. I felt, you know, I mean, this doesn't happen to me. I can become impatient. But I just felt this heat really just rising up in me. And I was thinking of Molotov cocktails and, you know, I was just that this petty government official should actually have power over us and what we were doing unhinged me. I had the sense to just leave and, of course, come home and say, oh, what were we thinking? Don't ever send me to City Hall again. And people of entirely different temperaments went. But, you know, it was just astonishing to me. And I know it was just, it was a past karma, yeah, of just that, literally that. I mean, of course I wouldn't have, but it would, the, the way the energy came up was uh, really shocking to me, that how quickly and how intense and how completely other that energy was. You know, I could just see how you just get swept up in that and misuse your magnetism persuade everybody else to go off and storm the halls of the storm the Bastille and let the prisoners out, you know. <laughs> so Master was always a leader, but Master had become a spiritual leader. But when he was William the Conqueror, you know, he just had so much force. There's that fantastic story about when he first landed in England, he stumbled and fell. And all his men saw him fall. And there was this collective 
gas because everyone thought it was such an ill omen that, you know, he was going to conquer that land and the first thing that happens is he stumbles. Immediately, he, as the legend goes, he took two handfuls of the, the sand on the beach and he stood and raised them and he said, I am so eager to conquer to this land that I have grasped its very soil in my hands like that. <laughs> and instantly everyone cheers, you know, and it just, he just knew exactly what to do in that moment. You know, just, it, it, it's, it's so, it's thrilling really. Just couldn't make everything up because that's what he was like. His energy was so. I mean, so to be a leader is also just to be positive in the face of obstacles. That's what makes it magnetic. Yes. Just thinking about magnetism, you you need energy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Absolutely. you you have to actually, in action or word or affirmation to be magnetic and, and it depends on what kind of energy you put out that's the, what you're drawing. Yeah, that's exactly right. And how much, the quality of your energy and how much there is of it. That's why just merely to do more is not to do more good because you can, if you're putting out grinding, complaining, martyred energy, you're still working but you don't have any magnetism. You don't have any positive magnetism. Did you have a comment, Alan? I know this is a nuisance, but the people who listen online really appreciate it. Yeah, go ahead. I, I was associating uh, the magnetism with lightness and humor uh-huh. and the ability to react. And like with the grabbing the sand, it's yeah. like not being jarred by a circumstance, but turning it, just Absolutely. like being humorous about it. Well, we had another quality of master earlier, which was humor. I'll tell you a very funny story of this man who had a marvelous capacity to turn things to humor. This involves SRF, but it's still a good story. Um, he had a very quick wit and, and exactly what you're describing. And he, we, we, this was in the middle of the, when SRF was suing Ananda and we were having so much conflict. And he went down there. He was in Los Angeles, so he went to an open house at SRF's Lake Shrine. And he was a stranger there, and so somebody came up to him and said, oh, you know, I'm from the hospitality committee, and I see that you're new here. Are you with one of the SRF centers somewhere? He said, sort of. He said, I live at Ananda. Ananda. She went like that. She turned and just walked away from him. Now, most people would be a little bit intimidated. He was not at all intimidated. He followed her. Miss, miss, he said. He tapped her on the shoulder, and he said, if you're going to be so rude, better not say you're from the hospitality committee. (laughs) And she had the good grace to apologize, but you know, just caught it just like that. (laughs) I love that. Okay, let's take a little bit bit of a break. Just a few minutes here. What we're talking about here is um, how threads in the tapestry weave together and how our perspective is often too small because someone asked me during the break about the woman I was speaking of who, you know, did she ever learn? Did she change her magnetism? And I answered back that her karma was too complicated. You know, she was a very loyal devotee and has stayed so. Um, but uh, it's just, you know, it's complicated. You're, you're balancing things out. There was a woman once, I mean, I don't want to, you know, quote psychics and astrologers as being an authority that should be taken without a grain of salt sometimes. But sometimes they will, um, if they are competent, they will 
articulate something that you almost knew. There was this one woman whose horoscope said, has the karma to be perceived as insincere? And, and in fact, that was exactly true. You know, there was always, you always sort of felt like, is this woman for real? But in past lives, the person had not been sincere and had sort of used a certain charm to get what they wanted without really meaning it. Now they had actually repented of that attitude, but the energy was still running. So they had to live through the perception of being insincere, even though in their heart they knew they weren't. It was a great frustration to them. And like my other friend, as I was explaining in the break, um, the, as someone explained, I think it was Swami explained, you know, part of her karma was having had power in the past that she misused that power. And as a result, she was in a position where she really had a tremendous amount to offer and nobody would listen to her. Because it was, just wasn't her, you know, she'd misused power, so she just wasn't never going to be allowed to have any, but she was always close to it and just could never quite get people to take her seriously because she had to learn the humility or whatever it was. Um, But all of that is to say, um, when things happen that we don't think are fair or that we don't understand, stand back and ask yourself, you know, what could God be trying to teach me? Why would this in fact happen? I know in my own life I've I've had periods of time where, well, I mean, I remember one specific period when, um, I was in a position, I just really knew that I had something really important to offer to a particular situation. Nobody, absolutely nobody, wanted it. And after just banging my head against the wall for quite some time, and it was, a, you know, a big project, I finally just said, nobody wants this from you. And, you know, you're not presenting this in such a way that anybody thinks it's helpful. End of story. And that was very unfortunate. And it was very frustrating for me, but I knew that when I really looked at it, just my magnetism wasn't there. And I could think of lots of reasons why my magnetism wasn't there. And, you know, just stand, you just have to stand back. Instead of blaming a situation, you have to ask, you know, what could be causing this, and what can I learn from that possible cause? And how can I then begin to correct myself? You know, lack of respect for other people's knowledge, Um, coming in without sensitivity to their realities, um, misperceiving the situation completely, and even imagining that you have something to add when, in fact, everybody knows what you're going to tell them. I mean, there can be a whole lot of reasons, in my case, all of which were true. And it just... I remember once somebody... I I had something really necessary to say to someone, and as soon as I offered it... In fact, actually, Swamiji had asked me to call someone and, and tell them something on from his behalf, and he was right there with me. I made the phone call. As soon as I made the offer, I was just completely shut down. And I was so frustrated, and I said, Swamiji, that just wouldn't listen. He said, in his, his words were, he said, Do, are you ever critical of them, the people I was calling? I said, oh, yes, all the time. <laughs> and he just went sort of, you know, shrugged his shoulders. And Of course, I'm not stupid. I got it instantly. It was, I hadn't created the magnetism of being helpful. I might, the magnetism I was always putting out was not, a, not an uplifting energy. I wasn't a leader. You know, I was trying to be important. That's not the same. You know, perceived as smart, you know, get to have your way, but none of those things are actually being a leader. Big differences, huh? 
Yes, Alan. Um, <clears throat> some, sometimes it's hard to see yourself as others see you. Yes, it is indeed, isn't it? And, uh -huh. and, but you realize you're not seeing yourself the way others see you, but right. you're just not quite sure how they're seeing you right. or what to do or, or you know. Well, you can, is that a question? Well, it's an observation of it's, myself. No, it's definitely, you know, I am. Um, and when, you're, when light begins to dawn, sometimes it's, at least for me, it's like, how could I not have known that for the last 37 years? <laughs> but it just never crossed your mind. I think you can build um, inferences from people's responses. Um, you can accumulate objective facts and think what they might mean if you saw them in someone else's reality. Um, I mean, I sometimes say to people, look at the clothes you wear, look at how you wear your hair, look at um, the listen to the sound of your voice, you know, notice how you walk, think about how you spend your money, just, you know, think of lots of things and then try to add up what that person might be and see how close those objective facts relate to what you're actually thinking on the other side. And uh, it takes a lot of courage. And then every once in a while you can ask somebody, but that's really dangerous because sometimes people will say things to you that will take you years to get over. <laughs> but uh, sometimes you can if you have somebody that you really, really, really trust. But it is tricky. Yeah, it's, I, I totally understand. We're just behind our own faces and, and what, who we are... You know, I have, a, I have, a, I think I was talking about this in some sermon or something. You know, I have a weird sense of humor, and a lot of things that I think are funny, other people don't think are funny, and sometimes they think they're really bizarre. I said sometimes I think things are funny, and I say things that I think are funny, and people think that they're just really absolutely weird and not at all funny, and then there's a whole perception that's built. You know, from things... Swami said that to me once. He, he commented specifically that my sense of humor was not accessible to many people. And it was totally misunderstood. And it was just like, wow. And a whole series of misunderstandings in my life sort of came clear at that point. Because people didn't, didn't know I was kidding. Now that happens in emails all the time. You know, you say something... That's why you have that, those little laughing out loud symbols and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Because otherwise you get yourself in deep trouble. But yeah, Alan, being part of Ananda will help. I'm quite seriously because Ananda people are are extremely genuine in their responses, and are very very generous in their relationships with other people, and therefore the reactions you get are are the, are more true than other reactions that you get in life. So a lot of times when you're, you know, working with your business or even your family, the reactions have motive. And so you can't always trust whether the reaction you're getting is really a reflection of the energy you're putting out. But over the years with Ananda, it's not merely that individuals are good because they are good, but Master uses us to teach one another. So you can begin to take very seriously the kind of responses that you get as, as truer indications of what your actual energy is than has been true before. 
And that's one of the enormous benefits of spiritual family, of satsang, that Master touts. That's why we are a community, not just a residential community, but we live with each other as a community. And, you know, again, a characteristic of our path is that we're not just solitary individuals. We define ourselves as a community and we recognize the need for each other. And we try to give ourselves many, many different ways of being together just exactly for that reason. So we can see what our effect is on the world and from what we see objectified, we can begin to understand what's harder to understand inside. And and also you begin to develop a greater freedom to actually be yourself, not only because you're not um, intimidated from being yourself, but the, act, but the practice of Kriya actually makes you more yourself. Because so, so much of the time, if, you, if you're not generating an inward flow of energy, your whole personality is just assumed. It's not actually from your point of origin. It's just assumed from who knows what, from other people's ideas of who you're supposed to be, and you're, and you're not really acting from your point of origin. Either, in that sense, you're not being original. Either you're not in touch with it or you don't have the courage to put it out, either one. And they all sort of gradually work together. That's why Ananda people become quite distinctly individual. So it's a very strange mix of extremely unified consciousness and very distinct individuality um, because of all those factors playing together. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, It's a great thing to look forward to. Plus, nobody goes anywhere. So, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, you're still hanging around with the same crowd and you've all gotten to know each other <laughs> really, really well. In fact, sometimes I joke. Sometimes I was with, we were with some friends we've had for so many years. Something happened. And I said, you know, I think every so often you should just turn in all your friends and get new ones. <laughs> I was only teasing, but just, you know, you know each other really well. And you just sort of get very, very at ease. I forgot to read it, the last paragraph here in number 16. After he said, that's the most spiritual person I've ever seen, Swami writes, he was always and quite naturally in control of every situation. Wherever he went, people deferred to him. Speaking for myself, though I loved him deeply, I always held him in deep awe. That's a, sort of a sweet part of it. I asked Swamiji once, we were driving in a car and I don't know what happened, but I gave a kind of cheeky reply that was just kind of a joke. And then all of a sudden it crossed my mind, maybe this is just such an inappropriate way to relate to Swamiji. Just this sort of anxiety came over me. And I said, did you ever tease, Master? Oh, no, he said. I was much too much in awe of him. But uh, tease Master in a sweet way, I don't mean in a negative way. But he he said, but later when I went to India, you know, in 19... uh, 58, and he met Ananda Ma. He said he was more mature on the path. He was older and more mature on the path. And he was able to relax and have with her a kind of relaxed, um, affectionate relationship that he was just too young to have with Master, is how he put it. And it was like he got to sort of have that um, energy that he could never have with him. Also, it was at the end of Master's life, and he was more withdrawn. Swami writes about that in this book, about how different Master was from the time Swami came to him 
than he had been in the 20s and the 30s when other people came to him because it was just a different era for Master. He was training him for a different, different job. I love that too. Master was always in control of every situation and everyone naturally deferred to him. I mean, you can, you can picture it. You could see how, how could you not? You know, if Master was there, it's not like somebody else makes a suggestion about what they're all going to do this afternoon. You know, you just wait and see where he's going to do and what he wants. I mean, that's what it is with Swami. Everyone naturally defers to him. You just, you, you learn that after a while. You have to kind of, because he, he it's interesting because you all, one defers to him even though he doesn't assert himself. I mean, Master, I, I suspect Master was similar. It's like he wasn't, he wasn't overpowering people, but anyone who was sensitive just felt the magnetism and automatically stepped back a little bit and let that magnetism define, because that's the magnetism you would want to define the situation. That's how it is when we're with Swamiji. Why would I want to do what I want? You know, I want whatever magnetism is coming through him to define this situation. And only when you really feel that he wants someone else to, you know, make decisions or take charge with Swami, do you ever do that. And even then you do it rather carefully. But you don't just, it's not, it's not a relationship of equals. It's just as simple as that. It, it's not that you're intimidated, but it's simply not a relationship of equals. And why even pretend? Master was always in control of the situation. But you had, but therefore, the, here's the other factor. Someone was speaking of this. When you were with Master, I'm sure, and I know having been with Swami, you always have to bring your energy up to his level. And that, for me, has always been the fun over the years of being in his company is because I had to bring my energy up to his level. And so it got to be a habit to keep your energy higher. You couldn't just... One of my friends who when she was be first be with him, she was in the habit of being a little bit blank-minded sometimes. And he would often just sort of say nonsensical things to her just to see if she was listening. <laughs> and she had to sort of, you know, learn to pay more attention. You know how some people only half listen sometimes? And, you know, he would, he would trap her in not listening until she could gradually raise her energy to the point where she was always attentive. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I'm thinking of the story of Yogananda as a, a boy telling another boy that he was his guru. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, just imagine that. Yeah, just imagine. That was in this book. He passed the note in school, I am your guru. And, and the other boy was scandalized. But then that night he had the revelation in his own meditation that in fact Mukunda was telling him the truth. So, I mean, you know, Master was much more in, in his full power from an early age than he makes us, than he lets us know. But still he was. Hmm. And this number 17 is actually <clears throat> one of the reasons I decided to do this class. Number 17 is he had a strong, deep voice filled with power. And that was such an interesting point to me. The whole, the whole chapter became of interest to me. He was no, there was no self-abasement in his humility. There was a suggestion, rather, of his attunement to the power of the universe. Yet there was lightness also. Amazing combination of things. Not only is Master interesting, but Swami's capacity to articulate in just a few words such interesting thoughts is also part of what makes this book so fun. One night at the monk's retreat at 29 Palms in California, 
I was suddenly awakened by a feeling of a great divine presence in the room. I was sleeping along with several other men on the floor of the living room. At once I sat up to meditate. Then I looked out the front window and saw the master walking slowly outside. Instantly I got up, went out, and touched his feet. Later he commented with a smile, I thought I was seeing a ghost. <laughs> it's just sort of a sweet touch. But also, you know, there's so many aspects of that. I'll do it from the bottom up. But Swamiji was there sleeping, and then Master's consciousness came near him, and it just took him completely out of sleep, even. And he had just a feeling, you know, God is with us. Amazing good karma for that, and, and he had to respond to it. But the first part of it was, you know, this is about magnetism. This is about power. You know, he had a strong voice filled with power. There was no self-abasement about his humility. And to be so egoless, to have so little ego that you're completely free in your self-expression is a much higher level of egolessness than just um, holding back with your energy in the hope of not appearing egotistical. It gets very complicated. What were you thinking? Uh Just for some reason, that reminded me of easily the funniest story in this whole book about when um, he and uh, Dr. Lewis and his wife had adjoining hotel rooms, and he decided that he wasn't going to sleep that night. And then the progression of just the things he would say, like, do do you mind? No. Um, So he um, said the problem was Mrs. Uh, This is uh, Dr. Lewis telling the story. The problem was Mrs. Lewis and I were both tired, she especially so. We'd been traveling all day. We're going to sleep, she announced in a tone of finality. That, as far as she was concerned, was that. Master, however, had other ideas. Mrs. Lewis and I went to bed. Master lay down on his bed, apparently submissive. I was just getting relaxed, and Mrs. Lewis was beginning to drift off peacefully to sleep when all at once Master, as though with deep relevance, made the following statement. Subgum. <laughs> Nothing more. Subgum was the name of one of those Chinese dishes we'd eaten earlier that day. I smiled to myself, but Mrs. Lewis muttered with grim earnestness, He's not going to make me get up. A few minutes passed. We were just drifting off again when suddenly, in marveling tones, subgum duff, master pronounced the words carefully like a child playing with unaccustomed sounds. Desperately, Mrs. Lewis whispered, We're sleeping. She turned for him for help to the wall. More minutes passed. Then very slowly, Super subgum duff. <laughs> the words this time were spoken earnestly like a child making some important discovery. <laughs> By this time I was chuckling to myself, but though sleep was beginning to seem rather an impossible dream for both of us, Mrs. Lewis was still hanging on fervently to her resolution. More minutes passed, and then the great discovery. Super submarine subgum duff. <laughs> The whole thing is just a marvelous story. Of, but you know, but even when you listen, when you think about it, you know, he would have said that with his full, powerful voice. Powerful. You know, Swami Kriyananda, of course, has always had a very strong voice. And he, he talks about once when he was in India in about 1960 or something in some airport, dressed as a sadhu with a beard and long hair. And he spoke, and some American who was visiting there said, you must be one of the Walters boys. (laughs) This was like in the New Delhi airport, because somebody had known his family when they lived in Scarsdale, New York, when they all went to the same Episcopal church. And the voice was so distinctive. 
Swami laughs because he said he can telephone someone and before he even speaks, or even when he just begins to speak, or even when they hear him breathe, they'll say, Swami! Because the voice is completely committed. And it's, just, it's, a very, it's just a very interesting fact. Voice is a big indicator of consciousness. And it's something really, you know, really to think about how you sound and how you speak. But the fact that he allowed the power of his nature to come out through his voice and didn't feel any need to stop that. There was no, interesting phrase, self, there was no self-abasement in his humility. His humility was just based on his attunement with the infinite, his realization that we are all just instruments of the divine and there's nothing individual to claim, but therefore there's nothing individual to withhold either. And it all came out in his voice. I mean, many people, the first time they hear recordings of his voice, are just shocked by it because you tend to sort of just picture it being more delicate. And it's important to listen not only to his, you know, proclaiming, but also to some of the recordings where he's softer and more intimate in his conversation because he, he wasn't always shouting from the rooftops. But in any, in any uh, speech, he's, he's also he's absolutely committed when he speaks. You know, he just, every word, every idea, he just, he speaks with complete sincerity and therefore there's no reason, in the, no reason in the universe, literally, why he won't just give himself to each word. It, it, all of those things are all aspects of consciousness that we have to think about. We speak the truth and we speak it with commitment. We speak it with sincerity. And then why would we be equivocal about it? I mean, I, oddly enough, as much as I communicate, I've had to work a lot on speaking up. And for many, many, many years, it was a source of enormous annoyance to Swamiji that I would not speak up. I would speak, but I would not speak up. And he, he became very impatient with me. I'm much better, but you're often having to tell me to bring my voice up. And my husband is often having to say to me, what, what? Because I just start, you know, dancing around in my own mind, and I'm talking, but I'm not committing to communicate. So Master's, the power of his voice and the commitment there was that he was always thinking about what he was doing. And if you're going to speak, you have to be heard. And if you're going to put words out into the universe, you have to speak the truth and commit to them. That's where your power comes from. And if you're not going to do that, you need to learn how to do it. That doesn't mean everybody has to be loud, but there's a magnetism there. And when you're not, I mean, I had to really stop and think, why don't I speak up? You know, what is with me that I'm always just kind of not saying what I really want to say? Even though, by all apparent, this is the same question, by all appearances, I seem to be very committed to what I say. But apparently there's some overlay of complexity here because I don't really say it. So, you know, what's going on? It's, it's, um, and just, I don't know, just that thought that he could, he was so not afraid of putting himself forward because there was no self being put forward. Of course, you can't fake all that. You have to just, you have to work at it. You can't just start talking loud because Master talked loud. It was quite different. (laughs) Master had a loud voice. I'm thinking about this. I'll tell this joke. There was this man who was very, very serviceful at Ananda. I mean, he was a wonderful soul, very serviceful. But a little unclear on the concept every once in a while. And this was very in the early years. He was a Norwegian sailor, actually. 
And when he wasn't at sea, he would come and live with us. And uh, we were just starting a choir, and he didn't sing very well. And insofar as he could sing, he had a deep voice. But he was in the tenor section. And someone said, you know, maybe it would be better if you sang bass. Nope, he said, they need tenors. (laughs) 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 You know, it's a great, good intention, but a little unclear on the concept. So just talking loud is not the same thing. But recognizing that everything we do is an expression of our consciousness is very important. And not drawing false lines. Did you, were you going to say something? No. no, I thought someone was reading for the mic. Well, are there any other comments? Or if not, then we'll. So we have finished with number 17. We are on number 18. Okay. I remember that. We'll try to remember. I always say I'm going to put a line. I usually remember. Okay, great souls. This is fun. So we'll keep at this. I'm trying to finish by seven more weeks or something like that. We'll see. I think we will. Okay.